So, continuing with this section about practicing Dharma, and we change gears once again. Uh, so, Lumpur, the previous talk, uh, Lumpur Cha was uh, giving advice to candidates for ordination, and now he uh, goes on to a different, uh, different talk, and he's speaking about meditation experiences. I had problems in meditation. I remember one time when I kept coming up against an obstacle. It was as if I were walking somewhere. I got to a certain point uh, and there was nowhere else to go. Another time was like walking and bumping into something. So I stopped. I would go again, but I kept bumping into it. Again and again and kept retreating. Finally, I became afraid and gave up. In the first example, there's nothing to bump into. But still, there is an obstruction. In the second, when you come to this obstacle, you become afraid and turn back. The mind wonders, what is this? In your sitting and walking meditation, you keep on coming to this point and wondering what it is. But whatever it is, never mind. After some time, it will cease. Then it can return. And there is the same wondering. What is going on here? This kind of uncertainty can really plague you. This happens in samadhi. It's actually a matter of having attachment in the experience of samadhi. These feelings and experiences come and we become bewildered as to what is going on. It means that our understanding doesn't yet reach the level of letting go. I once went to see a meditation master called Achen Wang. He was living on a hilltop with one other monk and two novices. I hadn't met him before, but had come to feel there must be something special about someone living like that. When I did finally meet him, he was happy. He knew. He knew that a sincere practitioner was going to be arriving at his dwelling. He understood about meditation monks, and he was happy to meet someone who was practicing. So a few things to uh, to mention there. I, uh, a few days ago, I, I think I referred to this experience that Lumpur Shah had of uh, uh, this uh, kind of nimitta of going uh, across a bridge and the bridge just dropping away and it couldn't not be able to go forward and so uh, this is the kind of experience he's uh, talking about here and also that uh, initially trying to figure it out on his own then it just led to a lot of uh, mental activity ideation and um, he says this kind of uncertainty can really plague you so this is where it's good to um, reflect on the different meanings of the word uncertainty. So there's the uncertainty, uh, which is vichikicha, the, the um, skeptical doubt, the kind of agitated, uh, insecure quality of uncertainty, which is an obstacle to samadhi. It's one of the, the five hindrances to samadhi. So sense desire, ill will, uh, restlessness, dullness, and, uh, and doubt. Uh, so it's the fifth of those five uh, nivaranas, the five hindrances. So that kind of uncertainty is an obstacle, is a, is a, a, a um, confusing influence on the mind. The other kind of uncertainty, which is valuable and <laughs> to be cultivated, even though we use the same word in English to refer to both, is the development of the anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence or the perception of uncertainty, so that's, uh, we use the same English word, but whereas one is a cause of dukkha and difficulty and confusion, the other 
is uh, like a, a direct application of wisdom and helps the mind to see more clearly by letting go of its assumptions and preoccupations and uh, it, uh, the attachments. So um, it, it's it's good to uh, bear that in mind that when we read the, or hear the word uncertainty or things not being being sure that uh, it can go in different directions. So this is speaking about uncertainty or perplexity where the mind is uh, uh, is overactive in the realm of thinking and is uh, unable to to uh, to see things clearly and is uh, there's a quality of confusion, agitation and complication. So then also the um, this uh, going to visit Achan Wang who was a, a disciple of, of Achan Man uh, and that uh, so the young Ajahn Chah had. Uh, had uh, heard of him. This is in the era, I think, before uh, Wat Bapong had begun. Um, so uh, Ajahn Chah was, uh, uh, he was born in 1918. He became a, a, a bhikkhu in 1938. And so just this is sort of uh, in the period just after the Second World War, late 40s um, and uh, the early 50s. Wat Bapong, his monastery was started in 1954, so this is sort of in the period from the end of the Second World War, 45, to uh, to say about 52 or 53, or somewhere in there, when the young Ajahn Chah was doing a lot of wandering and trying to find different meditation teachers in the, the northeast of Thailand and, and around the country. And it was it was hard to find anyone who was really experienced in meditation. Uh, and also that uh, Ajahn Man and his disciples tended to have a, a policy of wandering from place to place, until he got very old, Ajahn Man never spent the same, never spent uh, two rains retreats in the same place. Uh, one year after another, he was always traveling to different places. So it wasn't like where you could just email somebody or <laughs> have a postal address. It's like, well, where's Ajahn Man? Oh, good question. <laughs> start looking, you know, and you're asking around and trying to figure out. So anyway, he'd heard of, of Ajahn Wang and uh, was um, living on this uh, hilltop monastery. And uh, he went to go and find him. And uh, when he said that uh, uh, Achan Wang knew that a, a practitioner was going to be arriving at his dwelling, that, that was an experience that uh, Ajahn Shah also had with another of his meditation teachers in that era, um, Lumpur Tongrat. Um, so Achan Wang uh, was a, a, um, a Damayut monk, uh, one of the, the, the lineage, the Nikaya that um, uh, Venerable Achan Man belonged to. Uh, and the... Um, other main teachers that Ajahn Chah had, Lumpur Tongrat and uh, Lumpur Kinnari, they were both from the other Nikaya, the other lineage, the, the Mahanikai. So uh, when uh, apparently when Ajahn Chah again was about five or six reigns, I mean six or seven reigns, he uh, he uh, went to go and visit uh, Lumpur Tongrat, and as a sort of uh, young Tulang monk walks into the the monastery gate, and uh, Ajahn Tongrat apparently said, Ah, Tan Chah, you've arrived. Without him having sent a message or him have, never having met before or not having any word that uh, a young monk called uh, called uh, the Bhikkhu Cha uh, uh, Subato would be uh, would be arriving so uh, Lumpur Tongrat was also tuned into that kind of level of um, of, uh, of knowledge so to continue in the evening he spoke to us about practice he was a disciple of Achan Man in the generation of Achan Li. These were really serious practitioners. I said to him, Venerable Achan, this seems like an appropriate occasion for me to ask you for some guidance. I want to know what meditation is really all about. 
that I spoke of the difficulty that I had experienced. He said, oh, that's not all there is to the matter. That's a very small part of it. And he spoke from his own experience. Once when he was doing walking meditation, he stopped and fixed his attention, and his body sank into the ground. He was aware of this. Why wouldn't he know what was taking place? And he saw his body sinking further and further into the earth. With awareness, he could just let it keep sinking, let it do what it would do. Finally, it got to the end. He didn't know where or what this end was, but he was aware that his body had reached it. Then his body started rising up, rose up to the surface of the earth, but it didn't stop there. It kept on going, rising, up and up. He was aware of all of this, and he was also really astonished at how such things could happen. His body kept on floating till it came to a tree, and then it exploded. Boom! His intestines were hanging from the branches of the trees like garlands. I asked, Ajahn, was this a dream? It wasn't a dream. Well, this was certainly strange to hear about, but these things really happen. When you experience such things, you will know they really do happen. So uh, I can't say I've had that kind of experience myself. <laughs> but I fully, uh, I can fully accredit uh, Ajahn Wang with uh, having uh, had that experience of sinking to the earth or flying up into the sky, having his guts hanging off the tree like, a, like uh, ribbons and garlands. But um, uh, these things do happen. And uh, it, uh, I haven't had so much experience myself, but uh, I've led so many meditation retreats and sometimes people... Uh, meditate, uh, meditating on retreats, they they have these kind of um, very colourful and uh, and compelling, convincing uh, experiences. Uh, the, uh, the word nimitta, n i w m i t a, nimitta means like a meditation image. Uh, usually, it's a visual form, but it can be a sound or or it even kind of smells and tastes and such like. Uh, can also nimittas can take all sorts of different forms, but uh, yeah. So I certainly can credit people have. Uh, you know, uh, often reported these kind of very strange experiences. Um, I was uh, thinking, preparing this reading and going through it, I was reminded of uh, um, uh, many years ago a, a retreat I was leading here, and there was a, a young man um, whose name was Crow. I can remember. Crow Banda was his name. And uh, his meditation was uh, like this one extraordinarily colourful. Uh, complicated uh, event after another. It's like, um, and uh, quite si quite symbolic or meaningful. But his mind obviously worked in very powerful, uh, tangible images. And uh, one, I just was remembering one particular description he had. He said he was in this kind of football stadium, and then there was this this bubble arose from one end of the stadium, and then another bubble arose from the other end of the stadium, these two huge bubbles, like soap bubbles, gently moved slowly uh, towards each other. They moved you know, gradually, gradually, until they both came together. And at the point where they came together, the, the words were written, thought is surface tension. But, well, that's quite a good insight. <laughs> but it was a, you know, a, a, a way that the mind forms a, a, an insightful observation of, of, of nature, the way, the way things work. But it had conjured up this whole kind of very visible, tangible experience of being in a football stadium with these giant bubbles coming along and meeting each other. And that was just one, um, one particular uh, uh, thing I, I recall him saying. But there was many, many things like that. So it was, um, 
uh, it was hard for him just to say, well, when you talk about going back to the breath, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his his mind worked in these extraordinarily colourful and and, and um, the uh, vivid uh, uh, visual patterns and ta- tangible patterns, and so that's what he had to work with. So some of us might feel, oh, I'd like a bit of that, <laughs> you know, rather than just watching my breath going in and out, but. Uh, it, it, it did make things quite uh, quite complicated if your mind is always working in those kind of ways. So anyway, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay, to continue. If this were to happen to you, your body exploding and guts hanging in the trees, what would you feel? If your awareness is steady, you can just watch it all happening. If the body explodes, you simply know that it explodes. If the intestines go flying out, you know that they're flying out. You just need the firm conviction that this nimitta, a sign or mental image occurring in meditation, uh, and that you come and, and you come to have a deep conviction that nothing can harm you. Fixing your attention, the nimitta will appear to the mind and then disappear. Still, after it's gone, it might leave you wondering what it was that happened. I further inquired of the Ajahn, I'm at my wit's end. I didn't have this experience you spoke about, but there's something else that happened to me. It's like being on a bridge. I'm trying to cross a river on the bridge, but I get to a certain point and can't go any farther. There's nowhere to proceed, so I go back. Then I try again, but I always have to stop. This is something that happens in samadhi, not just in an ordinary state. I watch what's going on, and sometimes I see something blocking me. I wonder, who is going to help me? So, I have my doubts about what I should do when this happens. What is this, Ajahn? So then Ajahn Wang responds, This is reaching the limits of perception, was his answer. When you get to the limit, just stand right there. Take note of what's happening. Stay there. And if you're aware of it, the perception will resolve itself. It will change by itself, without any need to force it. You just note that it is occurring, and you're aware of your state of mind when it occurs. It will change. It's like the perceptions of a child being transformed into the perceptions of an adult. A child is fascinated by things and always wants to play with them. When the child grows up and sees those same things, She'll not be interested in playing. She'll be looking to play elsewhere. There has been a transformation of perception. I gained some understanding from his explanation. So this is a very um, helpful piece of advice, also uh, encouraging for those those feelings of being stuck and not being able to find a way forward and and also not being able to figure out what's going on. That um, that... um, uh, you know, advice that uh, that Achan Wang gave of just rather than feeling you have to do something with it or or understand it, just within that that same kind of visionary state, that nimitta state, to just uh, stay there, to be open to what's being experienced, and to notice the the changes that are, are are going on. That the mind can easily be fixed in a particular rut or a judgment of what's going on and what it might mean. Um, but just to to stop and be be still to to open to what's going on. Often that's the 
the the best way of handling a, a situation, particularly if there's a feeling of uh, of of stuckness, that the 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 nature of things is that they are intrinsically changing, and so just being able to to be still and to be open to to what's present is often the, that's the most helpful transformative uh, uh, element of it. And this last piece where he says, um, like the perceptions of a child being transformed into perceptions of an adult, so that that's that quality of seeing things in a different way. That if you if you are still you uh, let go of the sort of reactive habits and attune to what's being experienced moment by moment then that quality of of a change of view change of perception is something that can uh, can come uh, can come about and that that um, it's also very helpful to to be bearing that in mind that uh, with particularly if the, that feeling of being stuck with something or being uh, trapped in some way or or being frustrated not not things not developing uh, uh, helpfully in the practice that um, just to to be ready to to look back into the past and to consider how how your perceptions have changed from five years ago ten years ago twenty years ago um, and to to see that well how certain things that fascinated you or seem to be important or significant how now you'd it just it's not it's not got any validity or any doesn't carry any weight and that just to see oh look at that that was really important that meant something to me and now uh, i can look at that area and think eh, well that's no big thing really and that and by seeing that in the different areas of your life then you can translate that into uh, okay now what am, what am i assuming how am i judging this mind state or this meditation experience or what am i taking for granted here and so uh, oftentimes that feeling of stuckness is not it's not just a, a result of something in the past but it's also a result of the way that we're, we're relating to an experience in the present and that um, that, uh, the, uh, that quality of paying attention but loosening the grip uh, so that you are um, uh, you're not sort of grasping you're not pushing but you're not turning away you're, you're, you're attending what's present and then the changes uh, can happen and then also but this uh, not just with meditation experiences but in terms of our practice generally that sense of looking back and considering what was really important 10 years 20 years 30 years ago and how does it look now that, oh well that really changed <laughs> like, or that or what's important now they didn't have any value uh, before so oh, look at that so that then that that malleability of the mind, that way that uh, our, uh, the value that we give to things changes over time. That's a, that's a helpful input, uh, kind of helpful quality of uh, of the broadening the per- the perspective. That uh, it's uh, often something that we we don't really pay attention to, but if we bring the mind to that, and they, oh look at that! <laughs> so where did the value go? That was so important, so meaningful, but. Uh, it's not anything significant now. Aha! Look at that, and then that uh, illuminates the 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 mental habits that are uh, operating in the present. So, any questions, thoughts? Yes. Does it also happen for practice in your experience 
Is there something related to your practice that you found absolutely important 30 years ago and that now if you look back it's not anymore? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not just for worldly things? No, no, it's very much with respect to, to meditation and uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, that's the um, things like valuing how long you can sit without moving in meditation. That, you, that that becomes a kind of currency, like oh, you know, I can sit for an hour, I can sit for two hours without moving. Yay! You know, there's a sense of achievement, or, or that that you can you can build up, uh, and um, so that the 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 things that the mind gives value to, uh, it's not just worldly possessions or, or achievements, but it's also kind of meditative possessions, the, the you know, spiritual materialism. And um, so, yeah, I've experienced a lot of that. You know, and that uh, the um, uh, I used to collect ascetic practices that you know I've talked a lot about in the past. I was just chock a block full of things I was doing, different kinds of you know, which were on the surface were were like dutanga practices, things I was going without. But it was actually stuff I was carrying around and doing, and then you're giving it value that oh, I never sit on a zafu. Or I, I don't lie down to sleep, or these kind of things, and that, or I just strictly one meal a day, or I'm a kind of super strict vegetarian, and that, and then the mind gives value that there's, that the, the meaning is in the cushion, <laughs> or you know, or in the, the the food bowl or whatever, and not not noticing. Well, it's the mind giving value. And it's it's lost the perspective that it's a a skillful means or it's a con set of conventions, and it's been something that's been sort of given its own sort of meaning and and significance by the mind, and so that I mean, it's good to to look at in different cultures around the world what people think of as as wealth or as signs of of prosperity or poverty, um, and that. Uh, you know, in some countries, you know, to be to be really thin is a sign of 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 poverty, and it's very very um, uh, so, uh, uh, something that would make you, people feel really sad if someone's very very thin. Now, it's it's changing a bit now in the in the West, but uh, that 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 would be a, a number of years ago. That's a sign of great beauty to be kind of uh, thin as a rail, and sort of highly admired, and it's taken a sign of something that's attractive and good. Um, and the 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 age a person is so like in in Asia countries like Thailand, you know Sri Lanka and uh, you know and, the, and the, in in uh, the the Asian world to be old to have white hair and to be um, as a uh, uh, in the society is something that gives you a, a, a certain importance a certain weight a certain uh, significance. Um, and uh, whereas in the West, it's oh no, you won't dye your hair because it's you don't look old. I was a, a very interesting. Um, event. I was at a funeral in uh, when I was living in the States in, in California, and this person who died had um, had two sisters, one of whom were, uh, ran a charity in India, and the other one was uh, was an executive in Los Angeles, and. Um, they uh, and they they come for the the, the funeral and it's near to a Baigiri monastery and so the one the one who worked in India didn't dye her hair 
And she said, it was only when my hair went, went grey, people started to listen to me, because I'm an older woman, and that therefore I, I have some importance, some significance, some experience. So as long as I, I didn't have grey hair, I was just this, this young female who obviously has no significance, no, no uh, important role to play, said it was really hard working in the charitable field in India. And said, when my hair went grey, then people start to listen to you, and you can actually get some stuff done. And the one who was from Los Angeles said, there's no way I couldn't dye my hair. You know, like, to function in my world, you know, I can't possibly have grey hair. It was, it was uh, interesting hearing them talking to each other that uh, because of the different domains they worked in, that the, just the, the colour of the hair was, carried different meanings. So one place it was uh, completely the opposite to the other. So it's good to contemplate those things and to, to say, okay, well, what's the value system that I'm conditioned to? Like in, in a monastery, how many years have you been uh, in robes? And you can say, well, well Venerable Samahito, he's only, a no, he's only a novice, a mere novice. Venerable Chagadamo, he's, he's a bhikkhu. Not a very old bhikkhu, but he's a bhikkhu. So, you know, that you are, how many years you've been, you know, I've got four, uh, 44 reigns as a monk. Wow, that's a long time. But then if you meet somebody who's got 60 reigns, well, you're just a good <laughs> Just a kid, really. You know, but the. Uh, uh, and so that uh, that it's it's useful to to reflect upon those things that the mind gives value to, and say, well, before you showed up at Amravati, what did rains mean? It meant wet stuff coming out of the sky. Then <laughs> you, you walk into this value system, and it means oh, how long you've been in, in robes and such like. So that getting a, a perspective. Uh, uh, on the different value systems that we create is incredibly helpful because we we forget that they become automatic. This is good. What this looks like, what this this is called, what sort of status this carries or what this tastes like or what this sounds like, what you call good or not good, the the more that the mind can get a perspective on that, then the the more spacious uh, life is. As long as we, we give a sort of false significance uh, that we then believe in to different things, then life gets very, very cramped. Okay, so to continue. Then he said, don't talk too much. Don't have so many issues. There are so many issues, but all you need to do is to be aware that anything can happen in samadhi. That's enough. Anything is possible, but never mind. Don't have any doubts about whatever occurs. When you have this perspective, these experiences will just arise and pass without causing you any hindrance. They're impermanent mental functions. There's no inherent reality in them. If you follow after what appears, then when you see a duck, it can become a chicken. And then the chicken can turn into a dog. This would make you feel very confused, and there'll be no end to it. Fix your attention on whatever arises and watch it pass away. But don't then get the idea that it's finished. Don't think that you're done with everything, he warned. Soon enough, there'll be more. But if you have the attitude of not being taken in, 
not believing in these things, you keep on letting go of them. Then they pose no danger to you. Watching like this gives you a foundation. Don't run after these things. Keep on noting. When you meditate, you'll gain familiarity and you'll be able to turn these experiences inward for your mind to know them. Dealing with them in this way, un undoing the confusion of appearances, some wisdom will gradually come and your ability to deal with these things will naturally increase. They will be resolving themselves. The Ajahn said, in the future, it'll be just as it was in the past and you should practice in the same way. Your experiences may be greater or lesser, but no matter what you experience, no matter how extraordinary, you need to keep this understanding in mind. Be careful, he said. Some people seem to practice very comfortably. They don't have any obstructions. There's no suffering for them. This is previous karma coming to fruition in the present. When the mind becomes concentrated, this karma rushes in and invades. To say that things invade the mind doesn't necessarily mean bad experiences are occurring. There can be happy experiences also, making the mind bright and clear. Harmful things can be fearsome, but they can also appear in attractive forms. However, all experiences are a peril to the mind. Don't get fixated on them at all. So this is... Um, uh, also very helpful, you know, anything is possible <laughs> in terms of the mind. Anything is possible, but never mind. So be, be prepared for the utterly mundane or the extremely colourful and everything in between. But uh, the, 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 ta the task or the challenge is to not add anything to that, not to make anything out of the pleasant, painful or the utterly mundane experiences. And then uh, I felt this is particularly significant um, when there's a quality uh, of clarity established and there's a sense of, oh, it's quite easy for the mind just to watch things coming and going and nothing really sticks, nothing really has any, any weight. This is great. <laughs> so then that moment, uh, it can be that you're forgetting, oh, this is based on two months of, of retreat. <laughs> or I haven't had to make a decision or go anywhere or talk to anybody very much. And so this utter simplicity is completely obvious. It's really clear how everything works. You know, that sense of, well, this is great. It's all totally, totally clear to me now. It's downhill from here on. Then it, <laughs> it will be downhill from, from there on. That, that, uh, I can almost guarantee that. Because um, that kind of presumption, you're sort of reading uh, only part of the picture. You're only seeing part of the picture. And the fact that, well... This kind of clarity, this straightforwardness, and this quality of uh, non-attachment—it's based on the, the the conditions of the present. Particularly if you had you know, two or three months of of, uh, of retreat time, and uh, the mind is is thoroughly supported in that kind of clear vision, clear understanding. So that can be, uh, if not fatal, at least pretty dangerous to think, well, this is great, so I've, I've really got it figured out now. So you can almost hear the, uh, the, um, the voices of wisdom in the background say, oh, this is going to be really painful. <laughs> uh, I don't want to watch. <laughs> you can see like a, a car crash about to happen. So, that, uh, yeah, so be extremely cautious if that, oh, I've got it all figured out, it's all really clear, it's... it's um, it's t I, I can't. I can't see how I could ever become confused ever again.
like it's a very um, precarious thinking. I speak from personal experience. So, as he encourages, uh, if you have the attitude of not being taken in by the pleasant or the painful or uh, whatever, um, you keep letting go of them. Then they pose no danger to you. So yeah, also the um, in uh, in terms of how practice goes, uh, there uh, in one of the the Buddha's many many lists, he talks about um, four different modes of practice that can be experienced by people or character tendencies. So it can be um, uh, painful practice with swift insight, painful practice with slow insight, uh, pleasant practice with swift insight, and pleasant practice with slow insight. Uh, you can <laughs> categorize yourselves if you like but, but um, that uh, so sometimes uh, that the, if somebody has created a lot of good karma then there isn't a lot of you know, practice is quite quite uh, comfortable quite pleasant there aren't a lot of obstructions or difficulties as he says there's no suffering for them um, that can be the ripening of, of, uh, of uh, uh, wholesome karma in, in the past but uh, again, it's not something to, to to take for granted or to be sort of relishing or feasting on. But um, but rather, oh, this is just how it happens to be this way. This I have this particular skill or this particular uh, attribute. Um, it's not something to be conceited about or proud about or or uh, or, or to um, to sort of take for granted. You can know at the moment it seems to be pleasant practice with with, uh, with say with quick insight. Uh, but uh, it might not necessarily be that way all the time. <laughs> These things, uh, things can change. So, um, be uh, again, be uh, be wary, and also that those ways of categorizing oneself, it's it's a way of just sort of mapping character types or, or disposition. But again, it's not something to make an identity out of. This is who and what I am, but rather that. Um, it can be the case that yeah, it's the practice is going to be going to be painful, and so that's that's how it is. It doesn't mean to say that it's not worthwhile or it's not beneficial. It just means that it's it, it's hard work and it's uh, and there's a lot of um, of difficulty along the way. Uh, any thoughts, questions? It's what? It's known by its unknowing in a way. You can't. Mm -hmm. You can't say the, the awareness or the uh, awareness consciousness is a thing or an experience. It, it is just is, isn't it? It's an isness. So 
that's the only real stillness we can rely on. It's, but we can't go there. We can't <laughs> consciously make it. If we try to go there, it breaks up. And it's, we're back in the game, aren't we? That's correct. Yeah, well, it's like the the uh, analogy that Lumpur Sameda uses very helpfully is like uh, trying to make awareness into an object is like looking for your own eyes. Where are my eyes? Has anyone seen my eyes? Mm. Yeah, he would <laughs> go on a riff sometimes like that. Has anyone seen my eyes? They must be around here somewhere. I can see, so they've got to be here somewhere, but I can't see them. It's like, well, you can see. You don't need to. You know, the uh, your eyes don't need to be an object because you can see. So that. But in a way, the, the more that, that awareness is, is clarified and unobstructed, then it's both subjectless and objectless. There isn't, a, there isn't an I who's aware. There's, there's just uh, that knowing quality. And so that it, it's, uh, the, mind, the heart can embody that quality of, of knowingness. Lumpur Sumedha uses this, this phrase... Uh, Open unknowingness. Open unknowingness. Um, that uh, he's used in a few Dhamma talks recently, and that uh, which uh, is related to that, that that quality of of non fixity of uh, of attention, the quality of openness, but not uh, uh, say pinning things down or not knowing about. But uh, so that's a, a a useful phrase to. To reflect upon open unknowingness. Uh, you can ask him. Wait for wait for another dumber talk. <laughs> You'll probably hear him talking about it. So to continue, I studied with him like this for three nights. Then I took my leave, went down the mountain, and practiced as he had advised. For many days, I meditated and looked into this, contemplating many different things. It was very good. It led me to believe that it is possible for people to practice on their own, but that a way, but that way can be very slow. Without someone to point out the way to deal with the mind, the path can become circuitous. It's generally like this for people. When they get stuck, they're stuck deep. So circuitous means going around and around or going around the long way. In matters of the mind, if we go to extremes, it leads to madness. Problems of the mind are not so easy to resolve. There was an abbot in this area of, of Thailand where he was traveling who had a novice ordained with him. He didn't know what was happening. He wasn't a meditator, but his novice practiced meditation. After a few months of practicing, this novice started talking a lot. He would give Dharma talks on many subjects. It was certainly interesting. He'd never studied the texts, but he could speak about these things. It seemed quite marvellous. The abbot listened to him, and it all sounded correct. So he started thinking, this could be an arahant. The novice was able to explain all facets of the Dharma correctly, speaking in an extremely elaborate and skilful way. His ajahn didn't have experience in meditation, couldn't really understand these explanations, so he became convinced that his novice had realised deep wisdom. He thought that the novice had overcome the defilements and so was able to teach like this. Then, one day, sadly, they found the novice's body hanging from a tree. He'd actually been insane and finally had killed himself. Then the Ajahn was able to realize that the novice had been mad, not an, not an arahant. 
This is what it can be like when a meditator doesn't know how to practice properly and hasn't been shown the way to deal with problems and obstacles. So that's a very sad um, object lesson in um, uh, how the mind can get can get lost and what it can be like when you don't really have uh, have guidance. And so uh, Lumpur Cha was a great advocate for spiritual friendship, companionship, and um, drawing close to teachers, drawing close to your spiritual friends, and getting advice, guidance, and feedback from people close to you. And that uh, this is obviously one particular, particularly painful uh, example of what uh, what can happen. But um, it's it's interesting that when the mind gets into those states, that it can it can be quite deceptive because what they're called the vipassana upakilesas or the defilements of insight they can be they can on the surface they can seem to be um, very impressive qualities like this um, this ajahn the elder monk was was impressed by how the novice could could speak and could explain and sort of understood things but uh, the defilements of insight include things like unremitting mindfulness unremitting energy uh, 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 comprehensive understanding, um, the mind filled with light, the obasa, um, and so that these things might seem very uh, attractive or beneficial or, or desirable on the surface level. You know, energy, mindfulness, knowledge, understanding, uh, the mind radiant and, and bright. But if um, if the practice is not balanced, if the the uh, things are are uh, out of whack if the mind is is uh, over focused or obsessed in in certain ways then even though there there might be that ability to explain or to understand or having sort of insightful experiences and uh, and I've, I've known this with over the years different uh, different situations people in these um say these uh, states of uh, of sort of distorted perception it's also called sanya vipalasa which means a distorted perceptions that they can be quite accurate they can sort of read people's minds or they can they can uh, understand things or see uh, see things in a, a astonishingly clear way but it's not grounded it's not it's not uh, really found established in in an attunement to to reality and uh, the the mind can get more and more you know lost in its own creation so that it really loses its uh, connection with with uh, with reality, and so that uh, it's really getting lost in uh, in your own mind, and so that uh, this is a, a tragic incident. But it's not by by uh, by no means the the uh, only time that kind of thing has happened. So um, the, uh, it can be very attractive, particularly if you have a lot of energy. The mind is is uh, very very bright, or you're having these. Colourful visionary experiences, watching <laughs> bubbles the size of football stadiums <laughs> floating together and giving you poetic messages. Uh, it can be can be fascinating, can be intriguing, and the mind can get really drawn into those those rabbit holes. But uh, they 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 can be very uh, very difficult and very uh, very damaging, very challenging. So it's. Uh, if uh, you are having those kind of experiences yourself, or the people down the corridor in the in the next kuti are, uh, you know, staying up all night, you know, every night, or they stopped eating, or they, or they are um, sort of 
sitting out meditating in the snow, <laughs> the, then pay attention, draw close, and say, you know, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? You know, you know, appreciate your investigating cold feeling, but you have been here for six hours, and <laughs> you look like a, a snow being. So, uh, just wanted to check on you. So, do it is important that we look out for each other, and uh, to. Um, and so a person's impression might be, "I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. It's really fantastic. I, you know, I understand everything." It's like, okay, but then to to keep it in balance, then it, often our spiritual friends and and guides and companions are, are a very necessary uh, part of helping to keep things well well integrated. There was also. Um, I, I never met him myself, but there was a um, uh, um, a man in Sri Lanka called Damaruan, who, when he was a young boy, um, was able to uh, recite large passages of Pali, um, like huge amounts of, of Pali, and he had a particular accent that was not like modern day uh, Sinhalese uh, or the way that Pali was pronounced in in modern day Sri Lanka, and. Um, as a, as a young child, he, he uh, I don't think he could even read at that point. He was like you know three or four years old, four or five years old, and but he could he could recite these scads and scads of these Pali scriptures, um, uh, and particularly the Visuddhimagga, and uh, so he became very famous in Sri Lanka. This little boy, there's kind of recordings of him, uh, and then he became a novice, and then he was sort of. Um, uh, because it had this extraordinary ability, and, and people assumed uh, that uh, you know, they referred to him as an arahant, as an enlightened being. Apparently, he did have memories of having been a disciple of Acharya Buddha Gosa, who wrote the Visuddhimagga, and that was why he had been able to remember so much of it. But there was no lo- there was no logical explanation of how this small child could recite this pages and pages and pages of of Pali that and it, and in a consistently uh, sort of a different accent than would anyone that he could have heard in in modern times. There was no quote unquote rational explanation for it, um, but it was really uh, he got so famous and so so sort of praised and so um, kind of held up for um, sort of public um, uh, adulation that it it uh, really caused a lot of problems and uh, and he. Um, uh, uh, I think he's he's back in the realm of Dhamma teaching now, but after a time he just gave up the whole thing, left the robes, and just sort of and uh, kept uh, kept in a he got an ordinary, a very ordinary job. Uh, I think working in a factory someplace, and just sort of tried to unplug from the whole thing because it was uh, there was this whole kind of um, circus of, of activity and excitement uh, that was happening around him. He de- definitely had some strange abilities, um, but he w- he didn't claim ever claim to be enlightened. But people were reading that into into him. I think uh, in more recent years uh, he he got persuaded to uh, offer some teachings, and so he um, uh, and I, I believe he's taught some uh, at the the uh, Inside Meditation Society (IMS) in America and uh, the study center there. But I, I'm not sure uh, what he's, he's up to these days. That was a very good example of how the kind of um, excitement and enthusiasm of people around this this person really th- threw things out of whack. So he had enough wisdom to just 
get away from it and, and uh, lead a very very quiet and um, an ordinary life for a time and to just not be buying into the kind of um, uh, stories that people were saying or the, the sort of adulation that the people had and um, that uh, so he managed to find a, a balance with that but um, yeah, uh, he's probably about 50 uh, mid 40s or 50s by now Ruin was his name. So, any questions, thoughts, recitations? Okay. What happens is a weariness with life. One sees no point in living and doesn't wish to go on. But it's weariness in the way of emotional affliction, not in the way of wisdom. One sees no meaning in being alive and feels it would be, would be better to die. Things like this happen because people believe their own thinking. Trusting your mind can even lead you to take your own life. When it falls into wrong ways, it can be very wrong. The way I see it, this is just my opinion, you shouldn't be interested in magical powers at all. When the mind becomes tranquil, contemplate the physical body. Place the attention here for an appropriate time. Develop insight rather than looking for miraculous occurrences. Enter the correct path and practice insight meditation to develop the wisdom that sees arising and passing away. This will be helpful to you. Some people don't think like that. They want to practice tranquility meditation to the very limit. They want their practice of morality and meditative concentration to reach the limit. Where this limit might be, or where it can be finished, they don't really have any idea. The fact is, a wise person needn't be too forceful about anything. What is important is to uproot conventional reality, the seeming appearance of things, to make an end of them and be liberated. Liberation is transcendence and voiding of conventional reality, the apparent. In the apparent, things are determined as really existing and having certain characteristics, being a certain way. When you do away with these suppositions, you attain transcendence and are liberated from all these phenomena. This is knowing your own mind. It's really not necessary to get too infatuated with anything. This is enough. So this is uh, just this one paragraph. I think. <laughs> just going to sit on that for the rest of the month. Um, that uh, it's really a, a very, very good advice. Um, and that uh, his opening statement there, you shouldn't be interested in magical powers at all. That's, uh, as I've said a few times in these readings, that was very much a, uh, a centerpiece of Lumpur Chah's teachings. Yeah, he'd had various experiences and visions and and uh, certain uh, certain abilities uh, of one kind or another had arisen, but he would never make anything of that. And would you know, people would try and ramp that up or make something out of it, and he would just um, downplay things or, or, or push things aside or, or, or turn it back to the, the individual and say, well, it's not a matter of whether you, know, you can uh, f- you know, fly through the air. Like you can get on an aeroplane, you can fly, you know, big deal. <laughs> or like the, your mind is filled with light, and you pick up a flashlight, turn the flashlight on, and say, look, <laughs> we've got light in my torch as well. So that, that, uh, that was a... a um, 
uh, a powerful theme and then rather than being fascinated by maximizing a concentration or developing magical powers of one kind or another then um, uh, he's really pointing to the middle way the fact is a wise person needn't be too forceful about anything what is important is to uproot conventional reality the seeming appearance of things so that uh, as we were saying uh, earlier with uh, Eleonora's question um, how we suppose things into existence we determine we, we create values and judgments and opinions uh, we see things in particular ways and we, we don't realize <laughs> that we're creating the world through those habits of seeing and the, the attitudes and opinions uh, the conditioning that is here we assume that what we are experiencing is the world rather than our mind's uh, representation of the world and so that uh, what Lumpur is pointing to here, what's important is to uproot conventional reality, the seeming appearance of things, to just uh, be bearing in mind. We, we determine you know, book, or we determine carpet, or person, or building. And even though they think, well, it is a book, or this is a carpet, we are, we are people. They, well, that, that uh, sense of, well, look and see. You know, for, we call this a book because we speak English and we've got a, a, a human perspective, but... It, it, that bookness is only coming from a particular set of perceptions. It's not intrinsically a book or a carpet or you know, a building that these these elements are put together and we give it a name and we designate things into existence and person, body, you know, our name and, and uh, so on and so forth. And that's what he's pointing to, the, the whole kind of aspect of uh, developing high levels of concentration or the interest in sort of magical powers and special abilities is a, is a radical distraction. And what's really important is uh, the, um, as he says, in the apparent, things are determined as really existing and having certain characteristics, being a certain way. When you do away with these suppositions, you attain transcendence and are liberated from all these phenomena. This is knowing your own mind. It's really not necessary to get too infatuated with anything this is enough but this can be become a vexing problem practice gets very difficult for some people because they get caught up in their thinking they go overboard and deviate from the path thinking that they're going to do a lot practice really hard to get some great result just what doing a lot means or what great is they are unclear about So uh, that, um, I feel, is, is very uh, essential uh, advice and really characterizes the, um, uh, the style of, of practice with, uh, with Lumpur Cha. My own experience um, coming into the spiritual uh, world, uh, my first real contact with spirituality of any kind was with a, uh, a teacher in the Rudolf Steiner tradition when I was a student in London. I go along to these weekly talks that he gave, and it was incredibly colourful, interesting, fascinating stuff about the karmic history of, of Europe and all the... Uh, he's called Trevor Ravenscroft, this man, and uh, absolutely sort of dazzlingly um, uh, interesting uh, talks, and then the kind of having conversations with him and other people who came along to this, this group, and a lot of magical stuff woven into it all, but... Um, the <laughs> But uh, and even though it's interesting and colourful and compelling at that time, 
then my mind kept going, yeah, but <laughs> but how do I really do something about my mind? Yeah, yeah, but I'm, this is all fascinating and wonderful and colorful, but I'm still not happy. Or like, yeah, I'm, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm uh, anxious and insecure. What do I do about that? You know, yes, we can map out the karmic history of of uh, Winston Churchill and and um, the Albigensians and the Cathars and uh, and Adolf Hitler and um, Charlemagne. Fine, but <laughs> what about my mind? <laughs> what about my feelings of uh, insecurity and alienation and uh, and so that uh, that had uh, been a bit of a background for myself. And then uh, coming into the, the forest monastery in, in northeast Thailand, walking into Wat Nanachat, and then finding out that there was a, a, a kind of pointed disinterest in the whole magical etheric realm. Um, and what was interesting was <laughs> working with your mind and dealing with, with mental states and, and uh, fears and desires and attachments. Then there was this profound sense of, okay, <laughs> now we're in business. And yeah, so I, I do feel grateful for for that that uh, teacher Trevor Ravenscroft and and the you know the, the kind of uh, the 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 world it opened up, but it was uh, definitely not leading to a, a quality of, of liberation or wholeness or or, or genuine well being, and um, and he did he he again like I was saying about these people do have these powers he did have. Uh, Definite abilities that uh, I think I was talking about a few weeks ago definitely has some some uh, genuine uh, abilities, but he wasn't a particularly happy person, <laughs> and his life was really chaotic. Um, so that uh, yeah, well, it's all very well to be able to read people's minds or to map out the karmic history or, or make predictions about people's lives, but can it make me happy? Can it really make a difference? And so that was. Uh, so when um, coming into the, the Lumpur Cha field, as it were, uh, personally I felt this great sense of, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and so when people around and about would be interested in amulets or talking, you know, swapping stories about different ajans having conversations with devas or, or magical feats, I'd feel a sense of, uh, <laughs> with, uh, not really joining the conversation or would, uh, would duck out and... And go and go on my own way because uh, that wasn't any, the, uh, an aspect of things that uh, was particularly appealing. I don't deny those things. Uh, those uh, things uh, occur, and people do have extraordinary abilities of one kind or another. But um, it, it, uh, it it's not the the significant thing. Like I was speaking about Deepama the other day. Apparently, she could cook a potato holding it in her hand. Just pick up a potato and cook it, holding it in her hand. And when apparently she should, did this as a demonstration with some people, and she said, I can make it taste like chocolate if you like, but so what? <laughs> you can put it in the oven and cook it just as well. So, does, this, does this really help you with your mind? It gave people faith in her abilities, but uh, that was a very good response. You know. A chocolate-flavored potato if you want, but it'd be a big deal, really. But what difference does that make to anything? So, any final questions, comments, thoughts? Okay, we can leave it there for today.
Adamayang damakata sadu karang drama se sadu 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 anuoda. Brigitte, did you get a Brigitte, did you get a, a, a room sorted out yet? Yeah. Who else was arriving? Was anyone else arriving today? Andrew Andrew went up. Andrew left. And then Chanda was someone coming into Chantana's room? I haven't looked yet. <laughs> I can't see anybody else who's new, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, Chantana also left um, and said goodbye. So yeah, the one from Potten End. Oh yeah, yeah, she left. Yeah, she left yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I'll take a look, but uh, I don't see anybody else on the list that's ringing any bells.